If you brought along a copy of the Bible, please find our passage from Revelation. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, all the way through chapter 15, verse 4. Now, last week, we saw that Revelation 12 is the comic book version of the story of Jesus' birth. This is what Jesus' birth looks like when Stan Lee makes a movie of it. And we saw that Revelation is using the comic book genre to unveil things about our world that we sophisticated, modern, enlightenment Americans are no longer capable of seeing. In Revelation, God is unveiling what is going on that you cannot see in a microscope or a telescope or with all the sophisticated sociological analysis that Western society can produce. What is happening in Revelation is that it's unzipping reality and it's showing us what's really real. And part of what we saw last week is part of what's really real in our world is evil. Not just evil actions, not just evil governments, but the evil that's behind the evil. And we saw that there really is this being called the devil, and he specializes in death. And we saw last week that he specializes especially in the death of children. Satan has always devoured children. He did it through Egypt when he went after Israel by devouring the children of Israel. He did it when Jesus was born, when Herod killed the babies around Bethlehem. And he's still doing it today. And when children are devoured, there is always behind the evil another evil. This week we continue the story. Revelation chapters 14 and 15. Now remember, one of the, the difficulties about Revelation is you need to recognize that it's filled with symbols. Symbols are things that point. Don't mistake the symbol for the reality. So Revelation is using amazing symbols and fantastical imagery to show us what's really going on in the world. And one of the things that comes out in these two chapters, last week what really came out is this evil behind the evil. What comes out very strongly this week is this. There are only two sides in this world. In one corner, we are told, chapter 14, verse 7, are those who worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So when it's coming to what's really going on in this world, in one corner, we have those who worship the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of all things. Now look at the middle of verse 9. There's another corner. Those who worship the beast and its image. So here we have those who worship the darkness behind the darkness. The evil behind the evil. Now, at this point, you might want to protest this vision of reality, right? And say, no, wait a minute. 
I'm not sure I buy that. Because I look around this room, I see people who are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. But are you actually telling me that everybody who's not worshiping Jesus this morning on Friday night showed up in some weird ceremony out in the woods and was howling at the moon and worshiping the beast? Now remember, don't confuse the symbol with the reality. What, what this is saying is that there is no religionless place to stand. Despite the lie of secularism. See, our secular society is all wrapped up in claiming that you can carve out a neutral, religionless place. That you can separate church and state. And that there is such a thing as a position of a school system or a university that doesn't have religious values. It's neutral. It's secular. And what we do is somehow different than that. And they somehow have the moral high ground of not being wrapped up in what they believe, but they're only basing their lives and their side on facts. Now, what we see here is that that is a deceit. There is no religionless place. There is no faithless position. One of the tricks of secularism is that it reduces religion to a very tiny thing and says there are people who have it, but the really sophisticated secular people don't have it. In his commitment, commencement address at Kenyon, Kenyon College in Ohio, the late, great David Foster Wallace put it this way. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. He goes on, an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles. The only outstanding reason for choosing those things is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough money and things. You will never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need... You will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. This was a secular commencement address by the kind of most elite poster child for postmodern literature of the last quarter of the 20th century. Now, I'm not saying that everything David Foster Wallace says in this is true, but the point he is making is exactly the primary point of Revelation 14 and 15. Everybody worships. There are only two sides. The only choice you get is which side you're on. And so when we gather here on Sunday mornings, we are picking a side. 
We are giving Jesus our love and our loyalty. And when we worship Jesus Christ, we are committing our allegiance to him. We are committing ourselves to follow him, to being, to being shaped by him and directed by him. When we worship Jesus as a church on Sunday morning, we're picking a side. And we're picking the side where love is stronger than death. And where the poor are promised the kingdom. And chastity, whether married or single, reflects the holiness and faithfulness of God himself. Worshiping Jesus means we are planting a flag that supersedes the flags of the nations. However free or democratic they claim to be. When we worship Jesus, we're picking a side. We are challenging the tyrant who, the tyrants who think they're God. And we're challenging the governments that act like they're God's. That's what this is. Now remember, Revelation is using these amazing symbols and this fantastical imagery to show us what is really going on in the world. And one of the things going on in our world is that there really are only two sides and there really is not a secular middle ground. See, isn't it a wonderful move to say, we're neutral, so we get to say what we want. Oh, you can't bring that in here. You can't say that in government. You can't say that at the university because you're coming from a faith position, but we're coming from a neutral position. The creator who made everything and is the source of all light and life. That's one side. And the other side is this dark power, this anti-creation force, this source of all that is death and decay and destruction. Now, there's more going on in Revelation 14 and 15. That's the first thing. The second thing that's going on in these two amazing chapters where you think, man, alive, there's lots of blood and wine press and all this stuff. The second thing that's going on is this. Side with Jesus. Die with Jesus. That's the other thing in this chapter. When you pick Jesus' side, you will get killed. Remember, the book of Revelation is a letter. It's a letter that was written by the Apostle John to the small minority communities of Christians spread around Asia Minor. That's what today we, called, we call Western Turkey. It was written in the early half of the 60s, in the first century AD. So somewhere around year 61, 2, or 3. And this letter is written to these Christians that are these little bitty minority, vulnerable, marginalized, fragile communities spread throughout this part of the Roman Empire because dark times are coming for the church. The power of Satan is nestling down into the synagogues and the government. Both the Jewish synagogues and the Roman government are beginning to turn on the church in a pincher move. And we know that on July the 18th in the year 64 AD, the city of Rome caught fire. The great fire of Rome. It began to blaze on July the 18th and it burned for six days. And the emperor at the time, Nero, blamed the Christians. And what began was the first great persecution of the church. And it was a holocaust. Between the years 64 and 68 of the first century, the Roman Empire and the Jewish nation turned on the church and kicked their teeth in. 
Remember back in the early chapters of this book of Revelation, we saw this in January and February when we went through the first half. We saw in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 that these churches were not ready. Remember all those seven letters? So many of the churches were just not ready for what was coming. They were not strong enough to endure the persecution. And so over and over in Revelation, God is preparing the churches for what's about to come. And the way he's preparing them is by showing them, one, you're about to go through persecution, get ready. He shows them what's about to happen, but he does more than that. In Revelation 14 and 15, he shows them what the persecution is going to look like, not from their perspective when they're going through it, but from heaven's perspective when it looks at it. Remember chapter 12 and 13? That was the birth of Jesus from heaven's perspective, right? Matthew chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, that's the birth of Jesus from our perspective. And from our perspective, we see a census and we see the Roman Empire wanting to tax everybody. And we see the, the, the king, Herod, being threatened by this newborn king and so killing all these babies. But in Revelation 12 and 13, we flip the story and we look at it from heaven's perspective and there is much more going on than that. This is much more than just an isolated outbreak of evil. This is the cosmic battle of evil against God. Revelation 14 and 15 does the same thing with the persecution that the church is about to go through. It shows them what it's going to look like from God's perspective, from heaven's perspective. Notice back in chapter 13 at the end of verse 15, we're told that those who would not worship the image of the beast will be slain. That's what it's going to look like from our point of view. From their point of view, they're going to see their friends, their family getting killed. Then you get to chapter 14 and 15, and here you see it from another angle. Look at chapter 14, verse 4. God calls the Christians who've been killed for their faith the first fruits for God and the Lamb. That's a different image. From our image, they're slain. But when God looks at it, he sees an ingathering of fruit. Now, look at verses 14 and 16. The Christians are described as grain that is being harvested. Verse 15. Another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So here from God's perspective, it looks like grain that's finally ready to be harvested. Who's the grain? The Christians. Now look at verses 17 through 20. Here the Christians are not described as grain. They're described as what? Anybody see it? Grapes. Grapes that are finally ready to be harvested. Verse 18. Another angel came out from the altar. The angel who has authority over the fire and is called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. You need to know that in the Bible, God's enemies are never called a vine. It's only the people of God who are vines. This is the harvesting of God's people. This is what the martyrdom looks like from heaven. And notice where this happens in verse 20. Where, does, where, does, where are the grapes 
harvested. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. Those of you who've read the Bible a lot and you really know it, this phrase, outside the city, is only used with one other event in the Bible. What event? The crucifixion. In other words, side with Jesus, die with Jesus. Remember earlier I said the choice we face in life isn't whether we will worship or not. It's who will we worship. To be a human is to be a worshiper. And Christians are those who have picked Jesus. And when we worship Jesus, when we gather here week after week after week, we are picking the side where love is stronger than death and the poorer promise the kingdom and chastity, whether married or single, reflects the holiness and faithfulness of God himself, but also Think about what he's telling them in the year 60, 61, 62, before the fire of Rome, before Rome starts to turn on them. He says, now those who pick me, follow me. Go back to chapter 14, verse 4. It is these who have not devoured themselves with women for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. If you've been reading the Bible up to this page, where did the lamb go? He went outside the city. And then you find out later in that chapter that God's people are taken outside the city. And like grapes, they're crushed. Now remember, those Christians in the early 60s in in Asia Minor, they weren't ready for that. I think they're a lot like us. I mean, let's... How many of you, if we were going to have to die for our faith in the next year or two, are ready? How many of our children are ready? I mean, how many of us are caving just on peer pressure alone? Forget our lives being at risk. How many of us cave just when it comes to money? How many of us cave when it comes to our thoughts? How many of us are caving in the presence of pornography? How many of us are caving in the presence of greed and anger and so many other ills? Are we ready for this? So in this, this is a, I think there are a lot like us. I don't, I'm not sure. Are we ready for this? Now our Lord, he is so kind. He prepares them not only by showing them what's going to happen, which in and of itself is a great preparation. Now, this is going to happen, so get ready. But he also gives them some tools so that they will toughen up in their faith so that when this does happen, they are able to endure. And the primary tool he gives them is worship. Look at chapter 14, verse 7. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. When we gather here week after week and do this thing that we do, we are worshiping Jesus Christ. Why? So that we can get tougher in our faith. So that our imagination and our will and our hopes and our fears can be directed away from a world where violence and money and sex make absolute demands and punish anyone who resists. And when we worship, we are tuning our hearts to love Jesus. Ultimately, we become like what we worship. Remember David Foster Wallace? We're all worshiping. 
Worship money, you become greedy like money. Worship power, you become a person driven by power. Worship your intellect. Whatever you worship, you become like. We resemble what we revere. This is why Sunday morning worship is the place where most Christians in most centuries and in most countries have received the most help in their Christian growth. Now, how does it actually happen that this thing we do here, all these things we do, that it actually changes us and makes us tougher, inch by inch, little bit by little bit? How does this actually happen? Well, it's connected to the fact that the center of a human is their heart. The center of you is your heart, not your head. We are primarily lovers and secondarily thinkers. This is why the great commandment isn't think right about God. It's love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the center of you. Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. We are primarily lovers and secondarily thinkers. And worship is the imagination station that incubates our loves and our longings. It calibrates our hearts tick by tick, week after week. It orients our desires toward God and his kingdom. How many of you have ever shown up at church on Sunday filled with kind of ways you've messed up in the week and you're falling, 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 and suddenly you you remember what's really true and you kind of get back on track one more time for one more week. That's what worship does to us. How can we become the kind of people who can heed the call of verse 12? Listen to verse 12. Here is a call for endurance of the saints. That's what we need right now. We need to become the kind of people who can endure in our faith. Not just sprout up and be all happy clappy at youth camp, but who can run all year long filled with faith to Jesus Christ. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints to those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Look, anybody who ever says to you, Christianity is about relationship, not requirement, is wrong. Anybody who says faith is about grace and people who expect things of you and tell you God wants something from you, that's something different, they're wrong. The Bible never lets you separate out obedience from faith. You just can't do that. That's that's an invention of rich white Americans who want to live any way they want to live. They go right together. We need the kind of faith that endures, obeys, and stays believing all the way through the tough times. And how do we do that? How can we do this when we are now finally in America becoming the minority? First of all, by taking worship with deadly seriousness. Because it's in worship that God shapes and bends our hearts so that we slowly and surely become more and more like Jesus, more and more capable of actually, if the time ever presents itself, offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. Let me show you two really cool ways this plays out in the worship service. In Revelation chapter 14 and chapter 15, first of all, this strengthening of our faith Notice, first of all, it happens through music in Revelation 14 and 15. The music we sing when we worship our Lord. Notice verse 2. Revelation 14 verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, like the voice of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpist playing on their hearts. I don't have time to show you how those three different descriptions are descriptions of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But here's what I want to show you. 
In the Bible, God is a God of music. And he made us in his image. Zephaniah chapter 3 tells us, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you, does anybody know the verse? With his song. Our God is a singing God. C.S. Lewis knew what he was doing in his amazing book, The Magician's Nephew, when he had Aslan sing Narnia into existence. It is the song of the Father who forms the world and renews it. And this is why Christians always, everywhere, at all times, when they gather in worship, sing. Do you? Do you sing? Did you sing a few minutes ago? Not just mumble the words. Did you really sing? Did you really go for it? You see, in our singing, we're devoting our bodies to God. We're training our body in righteousness. Singing in worship trains us to sing our lives with joy and faith. In song, we are giving up our life's breath. We're breathing out. We're using our breath and it's rising up to God. We're giving out our life breath so that when the time comes, we will be ready to give out our life's blood. In the Bible, music and war always go together. When the church gathers in worship on Sunday and we sing, we are preparing for the battle we will face on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. When, when our hearts and bodies and minds are tempted to give our allegiance to the beast through worry and fear and anger and lust and greed and pride and vanity, singing in worship is battle singing. It's the victory celebrated in faith before the victory is won in our bodies. Saints sing their way to martyrdom. Read the stories of the martyrs. Read the stories of the little children who Idi Amin killed because they were Christians. And they sang to their deaths. The church has always done this. Saints sing to their deaths. Before we can pour out our blood as a sacrifice for God, we pour out our breath as a sacrifice for God. A singing church is a witnessing church. A church preparing for witness. Not when the songs of the church get inoculated and turned into some kind of ooey-gooey ethical singing, but when they are the songs of the Lamb. Great, in chapter 15, great and amazing are your deeds. O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true your ways. O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your judgments have been revealed all around the world when the church faces challenges and opposition music becomes the church's priority singing is the first and final form of the reign of the saints of God so I'm wrapping up by, by, by asking, how can we become the kind of people who can heed the call of Revelation 14, 12, the call for the endurance of the saints to keep the commandments of God and faith in Jesus in the face of persecution? And we saw the first thing we need to do is take worship with deadly seriousness. And then we saw that in the battle of worship, music is one of our chief weapons. Finally, let me show you one last thing that comes out of these two chapters. When we worship... Week after week, we not only sing, we eat. Right? We eat. Week after week after week. We have a meal. Why? Well, because as any friendly city co-op patron knows, 
You are what you eat. And as Christians, in worship, we eat and drink Christ so that we can become Christ for the world. We eat bread and drink wine so that we become the bread of life and the wine of joy for the life of the world. Did you notice in Revelation 14, verses 14 to 16, that the Christian martyrs are harvested as grain? What does grain become after it's harvested? And then in verses, bread, that's right. And then in verses 17 to 20, the Christian martyrs are harvested as grapes. And what does grape become once it's crushed? Wine. Having consumed bread and wine, the Christians are harvested as bread and wine. When we gather here for worship week after week after week, we eat and drink the Eucharist so that we become Eucharist. We eat broken bread so that our bodies can break for the world. We drink wine poured out so that we can pour out our lives for the life of the world. We eat and drink to proclaim the death of Christ so that we can be conformed to his death as a witness. We eat the Thanksgiving meal so that we can pour out our lives as a thank offering for the life of the world. We need to be able to lay our lives down. And we get there as we worship, as we sing, and as we eat. Let's pray.